Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 25th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Department of Justice filed a multi-million dollar settlement agreement with Uber Technologies to resolve a lawsuit alleging that Uber violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. Under the agreement, Uber will offer several million dollars in compensation to more than 65,000 Uber users who were charged discriminatory fees due to disability. The department filed a lawsuit alleging that Uber violated the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prohibits discrimination by private transportation companies. Prosecutors alleged Uber began charging passengers wait time fees in a number of cities starting in April 2016, eventually expanding the policy nationwide. The wait time fee started two minutes after the Uber car arrived at the pickup location and were charged until the car began its trip. Authorities alleged that Uber violated the ADA by failing to reasonably modify its wait time fee policy for passengers who, because of disability, needed more than two minutes to get in an Uber car. Passengers with disabilities may need additional time to enter a car for various reasons. For example, a passenger may use a wheelchair or walker that needs to be broken down and stored in the car. Or a passenger who is blind may need additional time to safely walk from the pickup location to the car itself. The department's lawsuit alleged that Uber started charging a wait time fee at the two-minute mark even when it was aware that passengers' need additional time was clearly disability-based. Under the two-year agreement, Uber has agreed to waive wait time fees for all Uber riders who certify they or someone they frequently travel with need more time to get in an Uber car because of a disability. Uber will credit the accounts of more than 65,000 eligible riders who signed up for the waiver program for double the amount of wait time fees they were ever charged which could amount to potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in compensation. Uber will also pay nearly $1.8 million to more than 1,000 riders who complained to Uber about being charged wait time fees because of a disability and $500,000 to other harmed individuals identified by the department. Consumer Watchdog filed its 834-page opening brief in a California Public Records Act lawsuit against Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara in the department and the Department of Insurance. They allege that Commissioner Lara and the Department of Insurance failed to search for and produce records related to a pay-to-play scandal involving insurance companies with business pending before the agency. The trial in this case is scheduled to be held on September 2, 2022. As explained in the opening brief, although Commissioner Lara had previously pledged not to accept insurance company contributions, individuals linked to workers' compensation insurer Applied Underwriters and another company, IHC, 
contributed more than $53,000 to Lara's 2022 re-election campaign fund. Some of the contributions were made in the name of relatives of insurance company executives, allegedly to hide their true source. Shortly after the payment, Applied's president, Steve Menzies, requested that Commissioner Lara intervene in proceedings at the department involving Applied underwriters. Lara did so, overriding administrative law judge orders in at least four proceedings. Menzies also stood to gain if Commissioner Lara approved his purchase of Applied's subsidiary, California Insurance Company. In the wake of statewide news reports about these questionable transactions, Commissioner Lara apologized and promised transparency. Consumer Watchdog then filed two Public Records Act requests with the department, seeking communications and meeting records involving 13 named individuals and any other individuals employed by or representing the insurance companies involved in the scandal. Several records the department ultimately produced suggested that Menzies and others improperly discussed the sale of CIC with Commissioner Lara and department staff. But the department refused to produce other records and failed to provide an adequate explanation for withholding them. So Consumer Watchdog then filed a public records lawsuit asking the court to require the department to search for and produce all responsive records. Consumer Watchdog also learned through discovery that the department not only refused to search for responsive documents, but also withheld 96 communications and redacted six others. They are asking for a court order compelling them to produce unredacted copies of the 96 communications and to do a thorough search for anything else that is missing from the records request. And now our crime report. The Justice Department filed a complaint in the District of Kansas asking for, for the forfeiture of cryptocurrency paid by a hospital as ransom to recover their medical records from encryption by North Korean hackers. The FBI had previously filed a sealed seizure warrant for the funds worth about a half a million dollars. The seized funds included ransoms paid by healthcare providers in Kansas and Colorado. Back in May of 2021, North Korean hackers allegedly used a ransomware strain called Maui to encrypt the files and servers of a medical center in the District of Kansas. After more than a week of being unable to access encrypted servers, the Kansas hospital paid about $100,000 in Bitcoin to regain the use of their computers and equipment. Because the Kansas Medical Center notified the FBI and cooperated with law enforcement, the FBI was able to identify the never-before-seen North Korean ransomware and trace the cryptocurrency to China-based money launderers. Then in April 2022, the FBI observed an approximate $120,000 Bitcoin payment into one of the seized cryptocurrency accounts. The FBI's investigation confirmed that a medical provider now in Colorado had just paid a ransom after being hacked by actors using the same Maui ransomware. 
The FBI then seized the contents of two cryptocurrency accounts that had received funds from the Kansas and Colorado healthcare providers. The District of Kansas then began proceedings to forfeit the hackers' funds and return the stolen money to the victims. This July, the FBI, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the Department of the Treasury issued a joint cybersecurity advisory regarding the North Korean threat to U.S. healthcare and public health sector organizations, which include indicators of compromise and mitigation advice. The Department of Justice announced criminal charges against 36 defendants in 13 federal districts across the United States involving more than $1.2 billion in alleged fraudulent telemedicine, cardiovascular and cancer genetic testing, and durable medical equipment schemes. The nationwide coordinated law enforcement action includes criminal charges against state telemedicine company executive owners, and executives of clinical laboratories, durable medical equipment companies, marketing organizations, and medical professionals. Additionally, the CMS Center for Program Integrity announced that it took adverse administrative action against 52 providers involved in similar schemes. As part of the operation, the department seized over $8 million in cash, luxury vehicles, and other fraud proceeds. Investigations primarily targeted alleged schemes involving the payment of illegal kickbacks and bribes by laboratory owners and operators in exchange for the referral of patients by medical professionals working with fraudulent telemedicine and digital medical technology companies. Telemedicine schemes account for more than $1 billion of the total alleged intended losses associated with the enforcement action. And these charges include some of the first prosecutions in the nation related to fraudulent cardiovascular genetic testing, which is a a burgeoning scheme. Orders for cardiovascular and cancer genetic testing were allegedly used to submit over $174 million in false and fraudulent claims to Medicare, but the results of the testing were not used in the treatment of patients. The proceeds of the fraudulent scheme were laundered through a complex network of bank accounts and entities, including to purchase luxury vehicles, a yacht, and real estate. Some of the defendants charged in this enforcement action allegedly controlled a telemarketing network based both domestically and overseas that lured thousands of elderly and disabled patients into a criminal scheme. This announcement builds on prior telemedicine enforcement actions involving over $8 billion in fraud, including 2019's Operation Brace Yourself, 2019's Operation Double Helix, 2020's Operation Rubber Stamp, and the telemedicine component of the 2021 National Healthcare Fraud Enforcement Action. The Healthcare Fraud Strike Force, which maintains 16 strike forces operating in 27 districts, has charged more than 5,000 defendants who collectively build federal healthcare programs and private insurance approximately $24.7 billion since the inception of that program.
And in regulatory news, the city of San Francisco generally requires employers to provide employees with paid sick leave based on hours worked in San Francisco. And the city also provides its employees with paid sick leave. But the city did not have a law addressing paid public health emergency leave, but that will now change on October 1, 2022. On March 1, 2022, the Board of Supervisors voted 11-0 to to place Proposition G on the ballot, and the proposition has now been approved by 64.44% of city voters. Starting on October 1, 2022, Proposition G would generally require private employers and the city to provide paid leave to employees for public health emergencies. This requirement would apply to private employers with more than 100 employees worldwide and would cover only their employees working in San Francisco. The amount of leave provided each year would be equal to the number of hours that each employee regularly works over a two-week period up to a maximum of 80 hours. This leave can be used only during a local or state health emergency relating to any infectious disease as declared by a local or state health officer or when a spare air spare the air alert is in effect. Employees may use public health emergency leave in several circumstances, including when the employer or the family member is unable to work due to the recommendations or requirements of a health order addressing the emergency, or the employee or their family member experiences symptoms of the disease causing the emergency, or tests positive for the disease, or the employee primarily works outdoors and has heart or lung disease, has respiratory problems, is pregnant, or is at least 60 years old when a spare-the-air alert is in effect. An employee may choose to use public health emergency leave or paid sick leave in circumstances where both could apply. Any unused public health emergency leave does not carry over to the next year. On July 12, 2022, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission updated a number of Americans with Disability Act Q&As, including former answers to A.6 and A.7, which pertain to an employer's testing employees for COVID. EEOC's assessment at the onset of the pandemic was that the Americans with Disabilities Act standard for conducting medical examinations was at the time, always met for employers to conduct worksite COVID-19 viral screening testing. However, they have walked this position back. With the revision of the Q&As, the EEOC makes it clear that going forward, employers will need to assess whether current pandemic circumstances and individual workplace circumstances justify viral screening testing of employees to prevent workplace transmission of COVID-19. Answer to question A.6 offers employers possible factors to consider in making this assessment, including community transmission levels and types of contacts between employees and others in the workplace. This change is not meant to suggest that such testing is or is not warranted, Rather, the revised Q&A acknowledges 
that evolving pandemic circumstances will require an individualized assessment by employers to determine whether such testing is warranted consistent with the requirements of the ADA. In making these assessments, employers should check the latest CDC guidance and any other relevant sources to determine whether screening testing is appropriate for employees. About 400 truckers at an AB5 protest managed to shut down the Port of Oakland, Port of Oakland. After a slow showing early Monday morning, they managed to shut down truck traffic at all three terminals at the Port of Oakland to protest California's controversial independent contractor law, AB5. On average, 250 trucks an hour would normally flow through the terminals on a typical workday. The CEO of the Harbor Trucking Association, who was in Oakland on Monday, lauded the demonstration. He said clarification is needed about how AB5 will be enforced and how to ensure owner-operators comply with the law. AB5 seeks to limit the use of independent contractors and largely classify them as employee drivers. The Harbor Trucking Association is a coalition of intermodal carriers serving the three major California ports, including Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Oakland. The Oakland protesters, who own their own rigs and currently choose which loads they want to take, do not want to work as company drivers, as many would be forced to under AB5. One protester called AB5 an American dream killer for thousands of minority drivers who immigrated to the U.S. with the dream of owning their own businesses. Some protesters in Oakland held signs that said the 70,000-plus owner-operators choose freedom over fear, and another sign said, don't let AB5 take our freedom. The Director of Governmental Affairs for the Western States Trucking Association said his members are concerned about AB5's impact. The California Insurance Commissioner adopted and issued an advisory rate for workers' compensation insurance effective September 1, 2022, that he says reflects California's still recovering economy. The Commissioner's action maintains the benchmark rate of $1.45 per $100 of payroll for workers' compensation insurance, unchanged from last year and within the reasonable actuarial range proposed by other experts, and again does not include a COVID-19 factor. His average advisory pure premium rate is below the $1.56 average rate proposed by the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California in its filing with the Department of Insurance. This advisory rate follows a virtual public hearing that was convened on June 14, 2022, and a careful review of the testimony and evidence submitted by stakeholders. The commissioner will continue to review data in the future pure premium rate filings to determine if long-term impact of COVID-19 claims as well as other experienced data. The pure premium rate is only advisory as the state legislature has not given the commissioner rate setting 
authority over workers' compensation. The Division of Workers' Compensation has received questions regarding the types of entities or companies that can be included in a medical provider network provider directory. The provider directory lists licensed physicians and ancillary providers of medical services, such as physical therapists, from which an injured worker covered by the MPN can freely select as their provider of medical treatment. DWC would like to ensure that MPNs submitting provider listings to the division for approval do not include non-compliant provider names. If an MPN submits a provider listing that contains a name of non-professional organizations, management services, organizations scheduling and organizing companies, cost containment companies, or other non-provider entities, the DWC will disapprove the MPN submission. For example, if an MPN submission includes an ancillary service provider, such as a non-professional corporation that either schedules or provides physical therapy, the submission will be denied since the entity cannot legally render professional services. The DWC will approve MPN submissions that contain the names of licensed providers, the names of professional corporations that can legally render medical services under the corporate name, or the names of licensed healthcare facilities. MPNs are required to affirm under penalty of perjury that all of the physicians listed have a valid and current license number to practice in the state of California, and that all of the ancillary service providers listed have a current valid license number or certification to practice by the state of California and can provide the requested medical services or goods when they submit their application for approval. These regulations make it clear that MPNs are responsible for credentialing all of the providers in their MPN provider listing. Finally, if an MPN is uncertain about the legal status of an entity that they are thinking of listing, an option to list the names of each individually licensed provider rather than the questionable entity name. This ensures statutory and regulatory compliance and a robust MPN provider listing from which injured workers can freely choose their providers. And in medical news, Amazon inaugurated its migration into the healthcare industry some time ago when it launched an online pharmacy and telemedicine service almost everywhere in the United States. And then last year, Amazon announced the expansion of Amazon Care, which it says dispenses high-quality medical care and advice 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, with a goal of delivering the service throughout through companies of all sizes to their employees nationwide. Taking this initiative even further, this week Amazon and primary care provider One Medical announced that they have entered into a definitive merger agreement under which Amazon will acquire One Medical. One Medical says it is a human-centered, technology-powered national primary care organization on a mission to make quality care more affordable, accessible, and enjoyable 
through a seamless combination of in-person, digital, and virtual care services that are convenient to where people work, shop, and live. Amazon still makes most of its revenue from orders placed through its online stores and most of its profit from its cloud computing arm. Both of these businesses were built almost entirely in-house, but Amazon's largest, largest acquisitions show the company is willing to buy growth in markets that are adjacent to its core competencies. Before One Medical, Amazon's two largest acquisitions ever were its $13.7 billion purchase of grocery chain Whole Foods in 2017 and its $8.45 billion purchase of film and television distributor MGM Studios last year. MGM and Whole Food deals tie back to the company's prime subscription offering, which gives it a steady stream of recurring revenue from millions of consumers and encourages loyalty. One medical could follow that same template, since Amazon has already added pharmacy benefits to Prime. Amazon has dabbled in the healthcare now for several years. Amazon bought Pillback in 2018 for $750 million, then rolled out its own online pharmacy. It also launched Amazon Care, a service that has both telehealth and in-person offerings first for its own employees before opening it up to other employers last year, an offering that competed with One Medical. So now Amazon will acquire One Medical for $18 per share in an all-cash transaction valued at about $3.9 billion. Completion of the transaction is subject to customary closing conditions, including approval by One Medical shareholders and regulatory approval. One Medical said its mission is to transform healthcare for all through a human-centered, technology-powered model. One Life Healthcare, that's One Life Healthcare Incorporated, headquartered in San Francisco, is the administrative and managerial services company for the, the affiliated One Medical Physician-Owned Professional Corporations that deliver medical services in office and virtually. One Life and the One Medical Entities do business under the One Medical brand. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.